0: Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeart Podcasts, and how the tech are ya? So yesterday, we published an episode called Lighting Up the Holidays that originally published back in 2019. Today, I'm going to do one from 2017. This is a, a rerun of an episode called The Tech of Stranger Things. It's still somewhat thematic because we have a discussion about holiday lights in this episode as well. Jess Royal and John Hilton were guests on this episode. Both of them had worked on the uh, set of Stranger Things. And yeah, it was a great discussion about the technical issues that go on to making a show like Stranger Things work, particularly a show that's set in an earlier era, that being the 1980s, And trying to make sure that everything feels genuine, it's actually tricky because as you are aware, most of us don't hold on to our technology for that long. Making sure we have the right tech is tricky. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode, The Tech of Stranger Things, which originally published October 25th, 2017. I have to thank my two special guests who have joined me for this episode of Tech Stuff, Jess and John, who both have worked on multiple projects, but the one we're talking about specifically today is uh, the Netflix series Stranger Things, a show that I binged immediately when the first season came out and uh, fell in love with it, not just because I recognized some of the people in it, but because it really felt to me like... It didn't feel like a show set in the 1980s. It felt like a show that was made in the 1980s and somehow disappeared and then resurfaced 20 years later. And it's, it's so evocative. And I wanted to have both of you on to talk about your roles in making this show what it was. So we're going to talk today about sort of the tech side, the, the behind the scenes side of making a show and and the work that you do and how that ends up contributing to this overall effect whatever the show may be or the movie whatever the project is uh, in this case we're talking about something that is a period piece but you know obviously there are other ones where you have a very different feel for whatever the uh, the project is so i'm going to start with uh you john john you are a rigging gaffer yes Tell listeners who have seen i'm sure the term gaffer" in the credits what that means because I think a lot of folks just don't know
1: the the gaffer is just a department head mm-hmm. that's in charge of the electrical, so electrical distribution and lighting um I think the term comes from old man, yeah, who was the old man on the crew he's in charge of the lighting
0: yeah yeah uh, they have a uh the term gaffer in uh, in Lord of the Rings actually Samwise Gamgee's father is called the old gaffer. Uh I say that cuz I'm a Lord of the Rings geek. So what are your responsibilities typically on a on a
1: shoot? As a ring gaffer I'd provide the power to mm-hmm. the set and any any lighting that we can get up before beforehand before photography we'll get that done as well.
0: Cool. So you are making sure that all the stuff that needs to work is actually going to work. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> An important role on any production. And uh, how did you get your start in in the the business known Man, as show?
1: I was a nanny uh-huh. for a director of photography in <laughs> 1998, the summer of 98. Uh-huh. And I watched his kids during the summer. And after, at the end of the summer, he had me tag along with him to go work on a film. And after the film, he was like, oh, you'd be great at this. You should move to L.A. I got my friends. They can hook you up at a camera rental house, and you can do that for a little while. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I want to move to New York City and be a bum. And so uh I didn't get into it right away. I was a maintenance man in an apartment complex, and all my tools were stolen. Oh, why? And I was like, I'll go work on movies now. (laughs) A
0: circuitous route to get there. So did you have a a background in electrical work before you even got into the movie? A little bit.
1: I've I've done – like my dad does HVAC, so I kind of dabbled on that and Uh doing the whole maintenance for apartment complex thing. I kind of understood electrical systems.
0: right? So you then take that understanding and you start porting it over to the production side where – I imagine it's a, a, uh, a fairly uh, uh, strenuous process to make sure everything is wh- how it needs to be because obviously any time on any set is money. So anything that takes extra time is going to cost uh, the whole production extra amounts of money. So I imagine this a fairly high-stress environment.
1: It is. Yeah? It, uh, I don't get a lot of sleep. <laughs> I always call Jess a workaholic, but – Really, it's me. I do it all at home and she doesn't see it.
0: Ah, that's fair. Now, <laughs> Jess, you, uh, you were a set decorator or still are set decorator for Stranger Things. Also, congratulations on getting an Emmy nomination for that Thank work. You. That, Thank you. Thank you. That's amazing. I, I it's the first time I think I've ever sat down at a table with an Emmy nominee. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big moment for me is what I'm saying. So let's talk about what that means. What is, what is actually set decorator on a set?
2: Um, so I work w- under the production designer, mm-hmm. um, and the production designer kind of sets the look, like helps pick locations, um, and then, you know, has a lot of uh, references and different things as far as the, the minutia of how a set comes together. Um, there's an art director who kind of oversees more of the construction end of things. Mm -hmm. And then everything from like those four walls, for the most part, I kind of deal with. So light fixtures and, um, you know, carpet and sofas and electronics and all the garbage and some sets that Mm -hmm. piles up in the clutter. That's my specialty.
0: So So when a, uh, when the art department has said like, oh, we've got this idea for what the the feel for this particular set needs to be uh it's your job to go and actually procure all that put it all together make sure that it's matching the vision for whatever that that idea was right yes and on a on a production that's a period piece, I imagine that also involves lots of hunting around for really obscure and and obsolete stuff.
2: It does. I spend a lot of time and I always tell everyone dead ladies basements, uh <laughs> estate sales. I'm always like emptying out the leftovers of houses, you know, mm-hmm. um after an estate sale is over. Um and you know, and Stranger Things is one of those weird shows especially where everything's a little bit interactive kind of, which is why um that 's why I wanted John to be here because he's i think he sold himself short a little bit as far as like just preparing uh or providing power to a set because we had so many interactive elements you sure. know lights and otherwise that um kind of had to be period and had to be functional and do a bunch of different things so
0: yeah, yeah, a good example of that would be of course the the Christmas lights make a play a huge role in that season of stranger things i mean it's it's a communications device uh and I don't know how many of my listeners know this. Christmas lights don't work that way typically. You have them all yeah. rigged up <clears> so <throat> that if one goes out, they all tend to go out, especially the period ones. So getting them so that they very they light up in very specific ways uh probably meant a little bit of rewiring work and a little bit of a uh, uh, rigging things in an interesting way uh so that you could get to do it on command that was such an important integral part of the storyline.
1: I remember, I remember when they came and asked me, they were walking through, uh, the buyer's house set. It was Chris and Jess and Todd. Hmm. And they were like, we want to make each light go off and on individually. Is it possible? (laughs) Yes. And I turned around and I walked back in my. Little office and I was like, oh oh, no, how am I going to make this work? (laughs)
0: Like technically, yes, it's possible. (laughs) Practical, not really. So, so how did you go about solving that problem?
1: Um, I just started scribbling a lot and, uh, locked my door (laughs) and just trying to figure out how to get lights to go on and off individually, which means we had to build individual strands of lights. Mm -hmm. So I ended up, I guess it's kind of low-tech. We're kind of getting it low-tech as possible. So I ended up using a Cat 5 cable Mm -hmm. and taking all the different strands and making them individual and soldering them into old Christmas lights that Jess would bring us.
0: Wow. So you were actually hand-designing something so that you could achieve this effect in a practical approach It's one of the other things, by the way, that I love about Stranger Things. I'm being – I was born in the 70s. So seeing uh, not just something that uh, is set and appears to have been made <laughs> in the 80s, but to rely so heavily upon practical effects, uh, that warms my heart because I, I grew up watching films that relied heavily on practical effects. And I think it is very important to get across that same feel in order to get the effect that you want and not uh, rely too heavily on anything that's uh, computer generated. Not to dismiss computer generated, it certainly has a place in storytelling, but it to me, at least, and maybe this is my own bias, has uh, it just it just has a different look and a different feel? Oh and, yeah, you know, yeah. there's something genuine about practical effects.
2: And not all of ours went. Uh, we had different tests. Uh, Runs that the Duffers for would they kill if any of the, those videos ever got out? Some of the ones that didn't work as well um, with like the monster coming through our latex. Uh, we have you know printed the wallpaper and stuff in the buyer's house onto latex, and we had all these different tests that we did with various um, you know slimy substances and things. Mm-hmm. On the, anyway, they didn't all. It took a while to kind of get that just tweaked, you know, just right. Right, the face and,
0: like kind of pushing through yeah. the surface of the wall.
2: And originally they had him breaking through. wall entirely. They're trying to do it all practical, and um, I think it's nice to have technology options where VFX could just take what we did and really enhance it and, you know. uh, Right. Yeah.
0: Eventually, you get to a point where you just say, you know, physics just doesn't work that way. Yeah. I I appreciate where you're trying to go with this. Yeah. I love that there was a a latex approach, a practical approach with that, too, because, I mean, uh, uh, I I also, full disclosure, I, my sister's a puppeteer. So I see the puppeteer side of sort of this kind of stuff all the time. And to appreciate practical effects where you're using something like a latex sheet and you're using some form of – whether it's uh, an actor, a, a mask, a puppet or whatever to to create that effect. I mean there is something really visceral and and the textures are really impressive. It, it's something that goes, again, beyond just that, oh, that's a very clever animation. Uh, and, uh, and also it just shows a, a level of care that – You know, you have to have all of that work back behind the scenes to get that effect to happen on on screen uh, that is happening in real time somewhere. It's 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 not a bunch of people staring at a green wall, pretending like they see something that is really effective and then having to react to nothing at all. They actually have stuff to react to in those practical effects. Uh, uh, I am not an actor that's good enough to react to a green screen with and and make that at all convincing i I need to have some sort of monster thing coming at me so that I can really you know be somewhat convincing in my response.
2: And the Christmas lights is the same thing because we, um, you know, I think it looked a lot more authentic and and better to have it practical. But even um, there's like the scene where Holly, the the young Wheeler daughter, is like Mm. following the Christmas lights down the hallway. Um, And I think if we didn't have all of those actually lighting up and her having that direction and sort of all the interaction, you know, with the lights and and actors, it wouldn't have been the same.
0: No, you wouldn't be able to get that tension. Yeah, that's a, a, a great moment. So, tell me also. I mean, the Christmas lights. I think that's one of those that I that I definitely wanted to hit upon because it's a deceptively simple technology that ends up actually requiring thinking outside the box in order to get the effect they wanted. So, you know, requiring you to actually solder things. Weeks.
1: Weeks. Weeks of soldering.
0: Wow. So if you had to estimate, like, how many weeks are you talking about for that just to make sure you could get that effect to work properly?
1: It was two. Two Two weeks. weeks. That's, I mean, that's a lot of work to get Christmas lights to light up. We built, I think we only built out of the 20 that we were going to build, we only built 17. Mm. Because that's all we had time to do. On top of everything else that we had to do. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, so Cause that's...
2: then they would so they would solder these little strands, you know, uh-huh. onto the sockets and then we I had it involved me going back to props, um the lights that Joyce originally buys at Melvald's um props, I guess it just sort of had newer lights in the box and wasn't really thinking about the Bigger picture, so mm-hmm. we had to go back and have switch those out for the older strands that have like the green and red twisted sort of look, right. so that we could that that was the easiest thing for us to copy. So. They would finish soldering, and then we would paint them green and red and twist them all together. Um, you know, so there's like a whole there's a whole collaborative effort. That's uh, that some went into serious all that. continuity yeah. right there, yeah.
0: making sure that like, because I mean, I I see a lot of movies where clearly that that level of care was not quite taken. You'll look at something and think like, that's not even the same prop as what he was holding a second ago. So having that kind of level of detail is really cool. Uh, so I assume there was someone just, like, actually just manually operating those lights
1: yeah. uh, for all those sequences. Uh, we had a, our dimmer board operator, Jim Dorneman. Uh-huh. He he programmed all that and operated in real time. Operated in real time. Wow.
2: He's another one of my heroes, too, because these guys – because it wasn't – because the Christmas lights were one thing. And then um, there's also, like, the scene with the lamps and in in the bedroom mm-hmm. um and Winona having to you know bring the, I guess we never had a scene at first they were going to show her like bringing all the lamps in and setting them up and that was going to be like a whole other nightmare but um <laughs> once they were sort of you know there just getting those programmed right to mm-hmm. do that effect um Jim stayed late with me one night and just like we did you know kept practicing and and getting all that down so
0: see to me that's really cool because it's not just technical it's it's a level of performance i mean you you're playing effectively another character in the scene yeah. And so, you know, it's there's there's all the timing that's required in that to and again, to get what the director wants in order for that to have the emotional and and psychological impact on the viewer, which by the way, incredibly effective because I loved it. Uh so, you know, I I I'm, my hat's off to you because I I occasionally am a performer, but I couldn't do any of the rest of it whereas you guys are doing all of that. So, I'm really I'm really impressed. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I assume that it is pretty tricky outfitting entire sets with 1980s era uh, carpeting, furniture, the technology in particular, because we're not so far removed from the 1980s that we think of those things as antiques, so therefore there's not a lot of work in preserving them. But we're far enough out where nobody wants to hold on to them anymore so was was that a challenge to you to to find things that could incorp that could live in that early 80s setting
2: not as hard as you would think Think, I think mostly just because thank God for estate sales and Atlanta yeah. being a good estate sales city. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked in other cities where you just don't, you know, they just don't operate like that. Mm-hmm. They don't uh, – I don't know how people get rid of their stuff after they've passed. I don't know, but um, Atlanta's good about it. Um, there are other – like I've done other movies. I did a movie um, – It was a news station set in the 70s, -hmm. um, and that's one of those, like, there's already not a ton of, like, news broadcast station equipment out there, not like, you know. Old Nintendos and things, but sure. um, and and then it was so fragile. It was sort of that like just that first wave of like electronic uh, technology and the old analog stuff from like the fifties was. Fine. You know, you can get that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. um, but that's but getting stuff that worked that was that's sort of that um, that first generation plastic electronic disposable almost like uh, right. technology is was harder but um, fortunately for you know Sears catalog days <laughs> a, a lot of Americans all had the same stuff and mm-hmm. enough people held on to it her pack rats that we could kind of curate and go through and find everything we needed
0: yeah I I, I went to a panel with uh, uh, the art director from stranger things and he talked a little bit about the uh, process of identifying the different the different types of, uh, of fabrics and the different color schemes that were going to be important and how, you know, certain, certain houses were going to look like they were more of a holdover from maybe the mid to late 70s and some were a little bit more modern in the sense of the early 80s. And, uh, and that also was really interesting to me. This idea of, you know, you're not just, you're not just create, creating a huge pile of stuff from a general era. You actually have to give each of these places its own personality.
2: Well, that's, yeah, there is a, I tell people the story that one of our accountants came to me after we were, like, up and filming the first, like, week or so mm. on stage, and um, she said, you know, Jess, I saw your sets, they look really great, but gosh, like, is this, this is the 80s, and they look very 70s to me, and I was, you know, and it's one of those, like, not every socioeconomic group is going to just in- instantly have, you know, the, latest the 80s, stuff, yeah. The, yeah, from, like, that Sears catalog that year. It's all – it's more of a, you know, when did they build the house? When would they have, you know, renovated? Or Mm -hmm. what's their – you know, did they have the means to update the carpet, wallpaper, whatever? And Mm -hmm. kind of have to just think it through, um, each character having its own sort of storyline with their home. Yeah, keeping
0: everything consistent. I mean that is clearly very important if you want to establish things like, you know, a believable character. It would be weird to go into a home of a a person who – was presumably uh, just scraping by, and you see what appears to be a brand new Apple II GS in the yeah. background. You're like, "That's it's a couple of grand. Where did they get that money for that thing?" Yeah, yeah. So, uh, was there anything in particular that you, uh, either of you, that you think was really interesting or really cool, uh, uh, something that you had not anticipated uh, that? You know, that's like your go-to. Like, you, you know, if, if people are asking you what was it like, you're like, well, let me tell you this particular thing that I was really uh, excited about, whether it was something that turned out the way you expected at the beginning or something that completely went a different direction.
1: Uh, getting getting invited back to season two, that no. was a surprise.
0: <laughs> that's good. That's good. I think if you were able to take all of those Christmas lights and make them light up individually, that's a really good start. <laughs>
2: Um, I don't know. I don't, I, that's, I mean, that's why I was thrilled to be here today and, and asked John to come too, because for me, that sort of like collaborative overlap, um, my thing, and he knows this well, is that like today in film, um, like everyone loves LED lights and mm-hmm. uh, lighting, even if they're trying to make, even if it is like period or they want it to look, um, you know, period, mm-hmm. they still kind of fall back on LEDs cause they're easier to control. And, sure. and I, kind of hate them. So, um, I mean I'm coming around to some of them but anyway to have them to have our electrical department have the patience to kind of like really do it right and work with the older technology and and you know that that was a it was a long process but
1: the fluorescent fixtures lots Oh yeah, and that's lots another a fluorescents because mm-hmm. they're period of course. Mm-hmm. And hardly anyone stocks fluorescent ballast that we had to replace yeah. hundreds of ballasts. Wow! In high schools and Melvalds and all over Georgia, we replaced ballast. Wow, that's a, that's yeah. a big undertaking. It was awful.
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> but it, but it pays off on screen yeah. because it does give you that. Like like that's why it feels like it was made in the '80s is because it has all of this this love and care behind it, uh, and you can see that rolling out through other projects that are clearly. Uh, Following that same philosophy, I mean Stephen King's It coming out, like I think the look of it owes an awful lot (laughs) to Stranger Things. Uh, It has a very similar kind of of feel to it for that – second. I mean it's amazing to me that they went ahead and decided to set the uh, adult story in modern day, which – conveniently made the children's story set in the 80s. And so there are a lot of parallels there. Uh, but it's funny because, of course, Stranger Things also, you, you could tell, has a little bit of uh, the the influence of Stephen King is certainly in the Stranger Things universe as well. So it's all kind of feeding in on itself. It's a um, uh, collaborative and cooperative as well as competitive process, I'm sure. So... Uh, Were there any particular sets that you really liked working on, or any that you really did not like working on?
2: Uh, I don't, John. I probably will have different responses, but um, I mean, the buyer's house is one of the. I tell everyone it's like its own sort of character that we, you know, it's Mm -hmm. at least we shot it in a for the most part chronological order Mm because we really literally destroyed it completely um as we went and you know joyce ripping things apart and monsters smashing things and um i will say it was it was towards the end of it when all the christmas lights were up and like half pulled down and it was an absolute nightmare for the shooting crew i mean for a boom operator to operate in that setting was just like it's uh you know it's everyone was getting like tangled and um it was yeah it was truly like a it was a it was kind of fun to watch it progress, but it was a uh, uh, it, it took a lot of patience. There are mm-hmm. not not every shooting crew would be cut out to kind of handle that that setting.
1: i, I the, my least favorite was the, the high school uh-huh. because we had again we had to go in and replace every fluorescent most of the ballast in there, and then towards the end of it, when they had the the scene with eleven and the monster, everything starts to go crazy and flickers. We had to take everything out. And we reinstalled our own LED strips throughout the school so we could make everything flicker on and off.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. And it wasn't yeah. even
2: just LED tubes. It was like cause they were soldering again. I just would see, you know, you guys were… On
1: location, soldering yeah. in some old classroom.
2: <laughs> Putting LED strips in, like, t- tubes or whatever you were doing, um, yeah, that was…
0: Well what was what was it like working in uh did they the the facility, wasn't that set in an old building in Emory?
2: Yeah, Hawkins Lab. Yeah. Hawkins yeah. Lab. How was that
0: experience? <laughs>
2: uh I'm you know I, there are a lot of shows that film there. Um uh-huh. I feel like we were still on the early wave of like some of the shows that were like really working on all the different floors and stuff. So like th- especially John and Having to go up and, and put, you know, move ceiling tiles out of the way to run cable and stuff is like you're, for the first time in 40 years, <laughs> so you know.
1: You, you were, you were, you were the explorer that yeah. everyone else got the benefit of. We found, off of. we found all the rat feces. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: well, for people who don't know, can you talk a little bit about the, the building itself where uh, the Hawkins lab was? Because I think, you know, again, you, you, everyone sees it in the show, but they don't know what the actual space was. They might just think, oh, was that just a, a set on a studio? And in fact, it, parts of it at least were very much in a real building here
2: in Atlanta. Yeah, We, I will say like when we were first, when the Duffers were first here and we were going to, you know, film Stranger Things in Atlanta and full disclosure, I sometimes location scout when I'm not decorating. It's like my secret job. Mm-hmm. So, um so I was doing a lot of the like early scouting trying to figure out what Hawkins Lab was going to be mm-hmm. and how, undercover and small it was going to be or how big and, um, you know, just what the look For was going to be. Or yeah. it might be. And I didn't, we didn't all agree. I, i Felt like that building at Emory, with its metal facade and kind of craziness on the outside, was a little like ostentatious mm-hmm. for a secret sort of government <laughs> facility. But um, anyway, but it they loved. I mean, it is a, a pretty impressive building, and it's very distinct. And mm. what they did with it in post, like putting the satellites and stuff on top, it made it all kind of work. But um, yeah, it's a uh, it's on Briarcliff here in Atlanta, and it's an old mental hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh yeah, so it's truly creepy. Um, <laughs> it's not everything works in there anymore. Power's like kinda like hit or miss in some areas and uh a lot of leaks and things. Lots of leaks. It's yeah.
0: <laughs> so it must have been a tough one to work in as well. John, did you did you have a lot of challenges going through all that? I mean
1: it, it, it's just like that place they just stopped one day and everyone left uh-huh. and then people came in behind them and trashed the place
0: uh-huh.
1: so there's broken glass everywhere there were needles everywhere Ugh. um and just trying to figure out what like how to power how does this light come on right where, and you have to trace it all the way down sometimes to the floor underneath you or the subfloor underneath you it was definitely a challenge.
0: Wow, so I'm I'm sure that was one of the the more difficult ones to actually to power and make sure that everything was working properly. Uh yeah, I saw the pictures of sort of the before and after uh during one of those presentations and it was really um uh, really alarming actually. There was a shot that was just down a hallway and it was possibly the most creepy looking photograph I'd seen in a really long time.
2: Well it, the one thing I will say is that we had every intention when we first started of shooting um like the the sort of rift lab um mm-hmm. in Hawkins like where the tank and everything is mm-hmm. that was the tunnels leading up to that and the opening scene where he's like getting off the elevator and everything we were going to do that at Emory which is they actually have these like underground tunnels mm-hmm. um that are that are uh, It's pretty bad. I don't even know. Yeah, it's like asbestos and all these, like, you know, it's just, it's dark. There hasn't been power down there forever. Um... And so at the last minute, I think they'd done these like air quality tests and stuff and they finally said, there's, okay, this is great. The texture is great. uh, It's authentic, but we like, really, we cannot film down here. So Mm. we ended up, um, copying the general look of it on our stage and we built a series of tunnels that were a lot more, um, easy to control from a lighting standpoint and every other aspect. So.
0: Right. (laughs) You don't have to worry about breathing in carcinogenic air.
2: We do that. I feel like the, like John and I and our crews that are there, you know, beforehand so early. Working on places, um, especially those guys with like the, the the ceiling tiles are the hidden. That's what is above those is the uh, the real. You know, there's and, the, yeah, yeah.
0: There's there's a whole <laughs> treasure trove of, of filth. And, exactly. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, so, Exciting. So we deal with the worst of it, <laughs> okay. and then I think shooting crew has a little better time by the time they get in there. It's right. all been cleaned up a little bit. Right. So. And then
0: of course, then you have you know the very pampered people, the actors. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Just,
2: yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: They complain a little bit about it being a little chilly outside. Like, listen, when we came here, there was no power. Water was coming in and there were rats everywhere.
2: (laughs) There's some sets like in season two, um, which, you know, we can kind of leave everyone to sort of experience later this month. But um, it's there is an arcade Mm-hmm. And just know, like, I, when we finish all this, I'll show you the photos, but the before was, like, an old um, laundromat dry cleaner place mm-hmm. that had been sold, closed down, leaky roof, all the same stuff. Um, and a hoarder had taken it over, and it was, like, to the ceiling with, like, mattresses and diapers and, like, whatever garbage. Um, wow. And so that process was an, another good one. Uh, we've had a lot. Stranger Things is, like, people who hear about our production, I feel like, who also shoot in Atlanta are, like, who he, see and kind of know what we started out with and then what we, the final product is are, like, why, you know, your show is, like, does the craziest. Like, we're willing to put up with a lot more, I think, than a lot of other, like productions, Hollywood productions that, you know, would never touch some of the places that we go into.
0: Yeah. Well, again, it pays off, though. So I look forward to seeing those photos because, of course, again, growing up in the 70s and 80s, I have a lot of fond memories of arcades that you just, you know, you very rarely encounter those kind of places these days.
2: It's going to be another one of those, like, why would you put the effort into the, like, it's, but it was just little architectural (laughs) things about the building that we thought were kind of great. And uh, I don't know. Well, every now and then you run into
0: one of those places where you're just like, well, (laughs) Everything inside here is is trashed, but uh, it's so evocative of that particular thing you're trying to do that, you know, I, I'm sure it becomes one of those debates that rages in your mind. Like, is it going to be worth the amount of effort it's yeah. going to take to get this place into shape? And if the answer is yes, then you just have to grit your teeth and go for it. And and and. Uh, you know, get the work done.
2: The library we had a the the Hawkins oh, Library, nice. yeah. Um, we another one of my really good ideas. Is there's a, <laughs> a a library in downtown East Point, mm-hmm. Georgia, that was um, it was like on the Places in Peril, like historic preservation list. That was it was leaky roof, same thing. You know, asbestos mold, mm-hmm. tons of tons of mold. It had standing water in the basement for like two years. Um. And we had the big idea to spend, I don't know how much we spent in there with like a full like mold remediation and and abatement process. Um, And then, you know, John went in and fixed all the light fixtures and we went in and put in, you know, know, bookcases and I bought like 20,000 books and um, library card catalogs and all that stuff just to, you know, for really not at all much screen time. Um, but, you know, but you need a period library and you got to start somewhere. So um, we ended up actually donating. I donated uh, like the books and everything to the city of East Point to stay mm-hmm. intact there. So it can, it kind of gets now rented out as a location for other productions and that money kind of goes into keeping the building up and they fix the roof and everything. So
0: so it's cool. We I, saved it. Yay. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a, a nice little byproduct of the production. It's not... Yeah. Not just, not just that you're making amazing entertainment, <laughs> but that you can actually benefit. Well, and again, this gets outside of tech, but we hear it all the time. I mean, there's always the discussion about, uh, the benefits of the, the film and television business moving into any place. When you can hear about stories like that, you're like, That's something that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of just from the fact that we're getting this influx of, uh, productions coming into Atlanta. For those who do not know, Atlanta is, uh, one of the cities in the United States that's really taking off when it comes to film and television and music video production. And, you know, there's certain, to a certain extent, uh, music video had been fairly big here for a while. Uh, television, some TV productions were being, were shot in here, but we're seeing more and more Film projects as well, largely because of the the construction of the Pinewood Studio that's south of the city, and um, they're especially like just around the area that we're in right now. We're at Pont City Market in Atlanta. Uh, around this general area, you you can't you can't go maybe a couple of miles in any direction before you start seeing signs for various productions. They're everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and um, and so we're actually seeing some of that benefit now, where we're seeing you know communities get potentially get the reuse of buildings that otherwise would have been remaining vacant. Um, from a, a similar perspective, although this wasn't from a film production, the building we're in right now was largely vacant for decades. It was a Sears distribution center. Then for a while, the city of Atlanta had about 10 percent of this building oh, yeah. and the other 90 percent was empty.
2: I picked uh, up many uh, police reports and things here uh, should, over I the, the Yeah, I
1: think the program – and you could get, like, art supplies. And I used to come here and get art supplies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it, to the point where if you were to walk around all the different offices here, first of all, they'd ask you to leave. But if you were to do that, uh, you would probably see a lot of of uh, old equipment. Like we have an old turbine in our lobby and it's because – Every office was, uh, given some of the pieces of equipment that had been used when this was a big distribution center for Sears. I mean, it was built right on the railroad. They would actually bring railroad cars into this place. So every office has some, some element of that worked into it. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's again just one of those reminders of the history of the place that for decades went just completely unused. And, and this was literally just stuff that was piled up. So I guess it's kind of similar to what you do, Jess, where you have to, you have to go into interesting places and just kind of search around. I mean, uh, there used to be a really great place, uh, very close to here that had crazy stuff for, uh, lots of antiques and a lot of, uh, old fixtures and things. And now it's a uh, restaurant. And I'm always sad when I go by the wrecking bar. Wrecking bar. Yeah. yeah. I'm sad that that place is gone because I would find really interesting stuff there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that was just for me. I don't I don't (laughs) decorate sets at all. Working remotely where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So uh uh what do you think out of maybe not just Stranger Things but every anything any production you've worked on what is the the most interesting uh piece that you have ever found for a production?
2: Well this um the, the the movie I was talking about that was a uh, uh, took place in a television station. Mm-hmm. Um, it was set in 1974 in Sarasota, Florida, and the director. I don't know if he completely understood. He's a little bit of a savant and and wanted to have like a full working broadcast studio from that era. That <laughs> so not just
0: look like one, but actually
2: literally work. working, which. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like monitors and a control room and cameras and and all of it and all the editing and um, and this is all still like film and stuff. Sure,
0: real to real tape. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, and there was this one piece, a quadruplex machine. And this is like right when um, news gathering was, was like going electronic, and mm-hmm. so a lot of that technology was changing like in the moment. But um, this quadruplex machine that looks like a giant kind of reel to reel thing. Mm-hmm. Um, That there are not that many of them, and there are really not that many of them left now, especially working, which is like a – you know, they're so finicky. Right. Um, There was like a place in like Rhode Island that had some, a museum and a couple other places. Even like in L.A., where I call the the regular prop houses to ship it out here, they they didn't have any. So I just um, was calling old – tv stations not that anyone has phones or answers their phone anymore anywhere it's like an annoying another annoying landline um thing but um so i was just driving around we were filming in savannah and i was just driving like on the weekends to smaller towns that used to have news stations mm-hmm. um just like looking for like that one place that has an attic or a basement that just stashed all the stuff and never threw it away um and there was a guy in in macon at a TV station, and he was, like, literally the only guy, like, manning, like, r- reruns of The Simpsons or whatever there, you know, mm-hmm. like, I don't even think they did news anymore. Um, but he came to the door, and I was asking him about, like, old equipment, and you know, he he's like, well, we do have this old site out in the swamp that we used to use, like, as a studio, and I was like, do you think you have a quadruplex machine? And he was like, oh, yeah, I got that. I got, like, two of those out there, and I was just, like, literally... Um, yeah, that was like the best moment. And then, so we, I get in this guy's truck and we ride out to the swamp and, uh, leaky roof, no power. Um, you know, same thing we always are dealing with. Um, but yeah, there in the corner in like a dry corner was like this uh, quadruplex and a bunch of other stuff that was really useful to have Too, we were able to kind of tinker and get it to work. And, um, that was my, that's by far my, my like prized possession of of all the things I've ever found. Nice.
0: I love it. It's, uh sort the sort of challenges you don't necessarily anticipate until you encounter one of those auteur directors who has that that strong dependence upon authenticity uh-
1: I'm sick of control panels, Jess. No more uh, control that's panels. That's another
2: – yeah, like season two is a um, – yeah, we, you guys will see when that comes out. But there's a – we did a, a whole control panel in the Rift Lab this time that we needed to be able to really control rather than like getting prop ones, which was kind of what we had the first season and something I was never really that happy with. Um, we, I had probably the bad idea of um, designing – my very own um, control panel with all these separate, like, old boat LED lights and indicator lights and all these different things that I I was trying to get John in like really early last season to help start like figuring out how we were going to power each one and have each one on a separate control. And, and- I
1: was told <laughs> there would be no flickering in season two because that was a big it was a big expense for production. Uh huh. And then. Then there, you'll see the whole,
0: apparently, the apparently whole board is a flickering mess <laughs> I was of like saying. yeah yeah I was like, yeah. I, like uh, I I feel like I feel like a little bit of it has been spoiled for me but i I will <laughs> I'll go into it just knowing there may be a flicker or two in season two
1: I don't know, yeah. may, I, don't know. I, I haven't seen any of the footage so I'm not sure yeah maybe that all got cut I wasn't yeah. even there when it happened so.
2: yeah that was kind of a nightmare and um we've done all kinds of like even season one um in the quarry
1: hmm
2: Which you would think, like that's you know probably not even that much from a set deck standpoint, and there and there wasn't except they wanted to light some of that scene with search and rescue where they find um, Will's body Mm -hmm. or not real body, but you know Um, they wanted to light that practically, and so we needed period whacker lights Mm -hmm. um, and just like the logistics of like me (laughs) me finding the lights that were the right searching the. Government, Surplus, government, auctions. government auctions is my sure. other go-to. Um, and so we found some in like Tennessee, sent sent transpo guys up there to go pick them up and bring them back, and then just John assessing that for the first time is uh you know this like archaic mess of wires and different things and um but he rewired those and they looked great on camera. Wow.
0: So so uh, it's it's kind of funny. I, I did an interview, it's actually going to be the episode that follows this one uh uh with a guy who was hired to to write a a full kind of like a, a workshop manual of the ghostbusters technology <laughs> and he was given full access to all the different props and stuff but it was his job to figure out uh, not just what the stuff was but uh, what it used to be and and how it actually works in real life and then how was it in in the mythology of ghostbusters altered so that it works for that and he started looking at all the different pieces like just imagine the top of ecto-1 like the top of that car and all the different uh, accoutrements that were on top of it and he had to source all of that and he says yeah uh, they went to a junkyard that outside of a NASA site and they got (laughs) all of that and I had to figure out what they were. And then, how does that help you catch ghosts? <laughs>
2: Is there really a junkyard outside of NASA site? Because that sounds amazing, uh, and I, I would kill to. I'll, I'll
0: put you in touch with him. <laughs> yeah, because he can tell you where they went to get all the, the different pieces. Because they had like various pieces of sonar. They had they had an old uh uh, uh <laughs> I think it was like an old ground to air missile launch. Wow case there was nothing in it yeah. cuz apparently that would be bad to get out there but <laughs>
1: wow. yeah
0: so there's yeah i'll i'll get you in touch with him cuz he can certainly tell you more about where they they sourced all that stuff yeah, yeah cuz that was uh, it was somewhere out west i know but um and uh, keep in mind ghostbusters was made back in the early 80s so maybe they've tightened up since then <laughs> but yeah. but it was pretty it was pretty incredible uh and yeah learning about that like that that experience of having to uh, to to really find out of the way uh, sources sometimes is uh, fascinating to me because you know the, I hold on to stuff fairly for a fairly long time, but um, I mean it's just technology is just one of those things that goes obsolete so quickly and uh, and all, also there's just so many different parts that if any one part fails the average person is more likely to. Either go out and buy a new one and just throw the old one away or just do without because a repair tends to be about the same amount of money as it would cost to just buy a new one anyway for a lot of the older tech. Right. So I imagine it gets really tricky, especially if they want something that's going to work on screen. If it's something that's just going to be like, all right, well, we just need this this washer dryer that was back then. But they're never going to use it. We just need it in the background. I guess that's one thing. But if like we need a working one, that's a totally different thing.
2: Yeah. It's uh, this season two has a lot of well we have the arcade which has you know, john and i early on we were getting the scripts and stuff for season two mm-hmm. talking about like how to get arcade cabinets that were in good enough shape or you know would we get real ones and then there's all this um i don't know if like the average viewer knows but like playback um is a thing that we deal with constantly on stranger things it's um, the frame rate adjustment and stuff on, sure. on various like screens and monitors. Right. So um, you,
0: your screen that you're, you're shooting is refreshing at a certain rate. The mm-hmm. camera is going at a certain rate. And if that doesn't match up properly, that's when you start getting those weird lines yeah. that start scrolling across right. the screen, which is realistic, but it, it, it's distracting because now you realize you're looking through the lens of a camera as opposed to being an observer on a scene. So right. you have to fix
2: that. All right. And so, and, and even, um, season one was similar to, uh, like the, the there's various, um, security, uh, rooms, like at Hawkins Lab. And mm-hmm. we, I think I feel like I've bought every, like, Commodore 64 available because they're, they tend to be fairly reliable and mm-hmm. easy to work with. And you can input various things into them. And, um, so doing something similar, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of productions probably would have put, like, LED, Screens or LCD, mm-hmm. you know, they would have just updated it with new technology and not dealt with the playback aspect of mm. running through like CRT monitors mm. with whatever we need to show on screen. Um, but we're we try to be as authentic as possible in Stranger Things, and so there's just a lot of uh, our playback guy was always present. Uh, I felt like on every set, it was always like real monitors. Um, same with the arcade, and we did it all pretty practically, um, leaving a lot of those those olds. Monitors inside the cabinets and then just like running stuff through them and, um, adjusting the frame rate. Well, that's,
0: so that's great. I, I mean, again, I just, to me, that stuff definitely pays off. Like, again, it gives that, that feel that you want and, uh, that, that sense that you're watching something that was made years ago, um, and yet with a modern sensibility. So I, it's, anyone who grew up around the same time I did, I think just has that deep, Connection when they see this, they're you know because it feels very Spielbergian in many ways, you know it just it's very evocative of those uh, those great films and TV series in the '80s. So, uh, you guys did phenomenal work to recapture that and to make it feel like. It was – on screen, it looks effortless. I know that that's exactly the opposite of what it really was. It was very, very full of effort. <laughs> but, but from uh, an audience perspective, um, it just it just works so well. So I'm really looking forward to season two. We keep hearing rumors about how many seasons there are going to be. I think there need to be as many seasons as there need to be to tell the story. And then we can, we can close the chapter on that book and want more. I'm happy with that. Uh, we'll see, because who knows what what'll happen down the line. But I am so really excited to see season two and beyond. And um, uh, if you if you could put a word in for uh, they need a, a a bald guy as an extra, you know, even if he's just like screwing a light bulb in, in the background. Uh, I'm local. I'm right here. I know I know Randy. So Randy and I go way back. I can. Uh, he's just throwing it out there.
1: Maybe I mean, Randy needs an assistant.
0: Yeah, who knows? I mean – Yeah, teaching assistant. Or yeah. or maybe just like a guy to like deal with all the in- insanely attractive women that he's dating. <laughs> it's phenomenal really. I was like – I had a discussion with him about that. I'm like that was – to me, like everything was believable up until they showed His me. cute girlfriend. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I was buying into it right up to – and he's like, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks a lot. I'm like, oh, you're welcome, Randy. You're a good guy. Uh, thank you, Jess and John, for joining me on this show. I really appreciate the opportunity to explore what it is you do and get a deeper appreciation for the work that goes on behind the scenes. And uh, uh, this was phenomenal. I wish you guys the best of of luck and success in the future. I, and maybe we'll have you on again at some point. We'll talk about some other crazy stuff. Like, you know, let me tell you what now is the hardest prop I've ever had to find. You <laughs> yeah. never know when that story's going to change. Totally. <laughs> well, thank you guys again. Thank you. Thank you. I know it sounds like a broken record, but once again, I have to thank Jess and John for coming into the office and talking with us. And of course, thank you, Ramsey, for landing the interview. It was an amazing opportunity, and I think it really turned out great. I very much enjoyed this. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of the show. And also just learning more about what goes on behind the scenes on any kind of shoot is fascinating to me. I see all these terms all the time, and I don't really have a working knowledge of what they all mean. So we're hoping that in the future we'll get other professionals who have worked on various productions here in the Atlanta area to talk more about what it is they do so we can understand how the best boy turned out to be so darn best because we don't know we want to know but we don't know you might already know, but keep it to yourself because I'm going to ask that best boy when they get them in the, uh, the studio. So you guys just hold on to that. But if you do have any suggestions for topics that you would like us to cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff or maybe there's a company that I should focus on or a particular person in tech, send me a message. Let me know. The email address is at techstuffathowstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those would be Stuff H S W. Remember, you can watch me record shows live live on wednesdays and fridays that happens over at twitch.tv slash tech stuff and there you'll see not just the the whole process of me recording but what happens when i make mistakes which is more frequent than i care to admit so come on watch and laugh and learn and maybe even fall in love who knows who will show up in that chat room and i will talk to you guys again really soon That's C-O-N-C-U-R
2: It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And
0: I'm Stephen wolf And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations.
2: Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more.
0: We have great friends joining from
2: people you may know, like Vilmar Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart.
0: Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever
1: you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was booted! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh?
2: Oh. Gene, run!